From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Wednesday edition of Sound On. I am Amy Morris, in for Joe Matthew. And we start with our top story today. As Colorado's highest court ruled that Donald Trump is ineligible to serve as president because of his actions inciting the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. We're going to learn more about this right now. Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr joins us. Greg, the trial judge in this case several weeks ago said Trump could stay on the ballot, but the Supreme Court in Colorado has now overturned that? Exactly. The, the trial judge said that this provision that's at issue in the case, the, the insurrection clause of the U.S. Constitution, didn't apply to the president. The Colorado Supreme Court said, yes, it did. And in addition, we agree with the trial judge that Donald Trump actually did engage in an insurrection when he incited uh, those rioters to, to go into the Capitol on January the 6th. Well, that's really my main question, because has Donald Trump been convicted of insurrection? Are they setting themselves up for a question of due process? So he has not been been convicted. That is that is a, a really important point, uh, and it may make a difference. It may not be framed in terms of due process, but uh, this is a, a provision that has basically, you know, almost never been applied, and certainly not applied in a situation like this. And uh, so, so the question is: Do you need a criminal conviction, or do you need an act of Congress, or something else, or can a state court just do what it did here, look at the evidence itself, and make a decision? And time is of the essence here. We do expect Trump's lawyers to appeal this? We, we do. So the, the Colorado Supreme Court order said, we're putting this order on hold. As long as Donald Trump appeals to the Supreme Court by January the 4th, which his campaign has said he's going to do, the ruling is going to stay on hold. So he may end up still on the primary ballot there. But if the Supreme Court agrees to take up the appeal, uh, it will be in a position of basically deciding whether he can be on general election ballots all across the country. So this could tee up other 14th Amendment questions then? It, it, it could, or the Supreme Court could just resolve everything now. And certainly there's a lot of reasons uh, why one might think the Supreme Court would want to do, do this. Uh, better to get a decision now one way or another or, or, or decision soon rather than have this issue, you know, uh, you know, sort of drift on towards the fall when it gets harder and harder to make a change in terms of who the Republican nominee is. You know, conventional wisdom has it that the Supreme Court moves quite slowly when it comes to certain cases, but they can actually move as fast as they like, correct? So they could expedite this if they need to. Ab absolutely. Bush v. Gore in 2000, uh, think about that case. That, that appeal was actually filed on Saturday, and the case was resolved on Tuesday, three days away. So if the Supreme Court feels the need, it can. Uh, of course, the courts also got this other matter before them involving uh, Donald Trump's claim of immunity from criminal prosecution. Uh, the special counsel there has asked the Supreme Court to decide that on an expedited basis. And the, the time frame he is asking for there is two months, which is about what the court took in the Nixon tapes case back in the 70s. Assuming the Supreme Court does take it. Well, first of all, let me ask you if you think they will. Does it look like, is it a foregone conclusion the Supreme Court will take this up? I wouldn't say foregone conclusion, but most of the people I've been talking to, both before and after the, the decision came out, have been saying, if a state Supreme Court says Donald Trump cannot be on our ballot, then the Supreme Court would have to get involved. It was one thing, as long as lower courts were saying, no, nothing to see here, we're going to let the election go go ahead uh, um, like like plan. Um, but now that the Colorado Supreme Court has, has intervened, it seems really hard for the Supreme Court to say, we're just going to let that decision go and wait a while until we see more from other courts. So odds are, are pretty good that the Supreme Court will agree to take this up. 
a bit of a touchy question here, but I think you can handle it. Is there expected pressure on Clarence Thomas, Justice Justice Thomas, to recuse himself considering some of the allegations regarding he and his wife? Well, there will certainly be pressure. There will be calls for him to recuse. Uh, that is a decision that has always been and looks like it will continue to be up to the individual justice. Justice Thomas, for the most part, has not recused from any cases connected to January 6th. The, the one exception to that had to, had to do with John Eastman, the, the, the lawyer for, for President Trump, former lawyer. Um, he, he's a former Clarence Thomas law clerk, and that case also sort of involved uh, talk about efforts to, to persuade Justice Thomas himself. So there were some special circumstances there. You know, there's nothing that I have seen that would indicate that Justice Thomas is going to change his approach and recuse from this case, uh, but I'm sure there will be calls. Do you anticipate a national response to this? What sort of impact do you see from the ruling on the high court? Well, it will have a huge national impact. I mean, it is possible the Supreme Court will take up this case and effectively declare Donald Trump cannot be a candidate for for president. And uh, that is every bit bit as big of a decision uh, as it sounds like. Um, You know, uh, an awful lot of people don't think the Supreme Court will be willing to do that. Uh, This is a court that uh, doesn't always want to put itself in the middle of political battles. And this, you know, in addition to a legal battle is very much a political battle. Uh, but if the court were to do that, it would just have a seismic impact. And, you know, you would certainly be ranking that up there with among the, the very biggest decisions the Supreme Court has ever issued. It's incredible. And we're going to keep watching it with you. Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for taking the time with us. Now let's turn to the war between Israel and Hamas and the humanitarian crisis in Gaza and the attacks in the Red Sea. Michael Knights is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, and he joins us now. Uh, Michael, thank you for taking the time with us. Uh, We're just going to go with the top news of the day. A top political leader of Hamas was in Cairo in Egypt today holding talks with Egyptian officials about a possible truce in the war in Gaza and how to make that happen. What does that signal for you? Well, it signals that Hamas is uh, desperate for the action to stop. They want to a series of long-lasting uh, truces or ceasefires and to get back to the business of horse trading for hostages. Uh, that's their survival technique uh, to try and stop the Israeli military action and get into a space they're much more comfortable with, which is hostage exchanges. How? Okay. Would a truce then, I'm trying to figure out how to frame this, would a truce then help throughout the region as far as attacks from the Houthis? And would it create more of a buffer to prevent other proxy-type attacks? The Houthis and the other Iran-backed members of the Axis of Resistance will keep attacking as long as there is a ground war in Gaza. So it certainly would reduce the amount of military tension in the region. Uh, But the Biden administration still seems committed to allowing Israel to finish the job uh, on Hamas uh, before we move to a full ceasefire. Now, Israeli President Isaac Herzog says his country is prepared to agree to a second humanitarian pause in fighting in exchange for these hostages. There are still more than 120 hostages being held there. Uh, What does that tell you as far as over the next few weeks or even few months as far as how the fighting may rotate through, how they're going to be able to have these future pauses? Well, CIA Director Bill Burns and a number of other regional officials are working 24-7 to try and get both the foreign hostages and the Israeli hostages uh, back from Hamas. Uh, The Israelis became very tired of Hamas's negotiating tactics uh, in which they would dangle the hostages and then pull them back at the last moment in search of a better deal. That's why we got the collapse of the ceasefire and the new phase of ground operations. Uh, There's an attempt now to get a new set of hostage releases going. Uh, But if Hamas uses its delay tactics again, uh, that effort will probably collapse as well. Well, that was what my concern is, is that the hostages are a bargaining chip and they're not going to be willing to give up that bargaining chip. How far can this go? Well, the Israelis believe that they're about three to six weeks away from completing the operation, uh, which would include 
uh, overrunning the locations where uh, the hostages would, in theory, be located. Uh, those will be there's a smaller, a smaller, smaller number of places where they can be. And as those three to six weeks go by, Hamas's leverage uh, is reduced because those hostages are going to get reached by the Israelis anyway. So the Israelis are counting on being able to reduce Hamas's leverage and eventually force them into a position where they give back the hostages in response for perhaps uh, uh, a deal where the Hamas leadership uh, can relocate to another country like Qatar. So then who is operating under a greater sense of urgency? Would it be Israel or, or Hamas? Hamas gambled when it took the hostages that Israel would be feeling all the pressure. But in fact, Israel has been very steady uh, in continuing its military operations. And the U.S. has provided very strong support to Israel to continue those operations. So that's probably surprised Hamas and the broader axis of resistance. We are talking with Washington Institute senior fellow Michael Knights. Michael, you have a new study out on the tricky challenge posed by the Houthis for the United States. How much of a threat do they pose and to whom? The Houthis pose a very significant threat to global trade moving through the Suez Canal. You know, what they've currently done with their attacks on shipping in the Red Sea, uh, which is south of Israel, and, you know, is the way that you reach the Suez Canal to connect uh, the Indian Ocean to the Mediterranean. They've essentially put global shipping back to the 1850s uh, in some ways, where you had to go around uh, South Africa uh, to get from Asia uh, to Europe. So they've had a very significant effect in terms of uh, affecting global shipping. You know, we remember when the Ever Given tanker turned sideways in the Suez Canal and it caused uh, enormous uh, economic damage uh, to both Asia and to Europe. So that's the threat that they pose. Um, you know, at the moment, the US is pulling together a escort mission uh, with a variety of nations uh, so that ships can feel uh, and insurers can feel safer uh, to use the Red Sea and the Suez Canal again. In your column that you, the study that you wrote, you referred to them as the axis of resistance. I wonder if that was an intentional use of the terminology that we may remember from World War II. Yeah, and then there was also the axis of evil, if we remember from 2002 as well. But it's um, it's what they call themselves, actually. Uh, it's an attempt to bring together all the different Iran-backed elements like Lebanese, Hezbollah, Hamas, the Iraqi militias and the Houthis uh, in one movement that is there to resist both Israel and the United States. So it's their own uh, terminology. And the, Israeli, and the uh, Houthis, rather, are trying to demonstrate that they're the most radical and risk-acceptant member of the axis of resistance in this crisis. Now, we only have a couple of minutes here, and I don't want to get too deep into it, but I think it's important that we establish what the relationship is between the Houthis and Iran. Can you briefly explain that for our audience? Yes. Uh, the Houthis built their movement as a clone of Lebanese Hezbollah, which was mm -hmm. itself a clone of the uh, post-revolution Iran's uh, government. So if you imagine the Houthis would be uh, the younger brother to Lebanese Hezbollah, and they both look up to their parent, the Islamic Republic of Iran. And there are very strong command and control links between the Iranians and the Houthis, including the provision of all of these advanced weapons which have been fired at Israel or at international shipping. Uh, so there's very tight uh, connections indeed. And in our last minute here, Michael, how does the U.S. then secure its own interests while keeping in mind the future of the Yemeni people? What sort of position does this put our U.S. military? U.S. military is in a strange position because it's facing an opponent, the Houthis, who don't fear America. And it's also coming at a time when the Yemen peace process, which might end the nine-year-long war, the world's greatest humanitarian crisis, is almost ready to be signed. So the U.S. doesn't want to do anything to disrupt that. And as a result, the Houthis are kind of bulletproof right now. They can do this to global shipping, and nobody's going to do anything back to them. What should we be watching for over the next few weeks? We have about 30 seconds here. We should be watching to see how many more nations join the U.S. in the escort mission in the Red Sea. All right. We're going to continue to watch that with you. Thank you so much for filling us in and for bringing us up to speed 
on how this is developing. Michael Knights is a senior fellow at the Washington Institute. He specializes in the military and security affairs of Iran, Iraq, and the Gulf states. We have much more still to come. Stay with us. You are listening to Sound On. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. You are listening to Sound On, and I'm Amy Morris. In for Joe Matthew, let's turn now to our political panel. Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and Democratic strategist Jim Kessler, Senior Vice President of Third Way, joining me today. Thanks so much for being here. We want to begin with the Supreme Court of Colorado, the ruling that Donald Trump cannot be on the primary ballot in that state because of his actions surrounding the January 6th attack on the Capitol back in 2021. First, I'm interested in each of your reactions to that Supreme Court decision that they overturned the trial court's decision. Was that a surprise to either of you? Uh, well, I'll take a stab at that, Amy, and uh, uh, welcome to the show. We love having you. And <laughs> what an interesting day. Um, I, I would say that uh, it wasn't a surprise uh, that the Supreme Court took it up. I mean, it's a pretty weighty issue. And anytime you're debating a constitutional issue like this, especially something as hypersensitive as a presidential election, uh, you know, you're going to you're going to get the priority. So, Nobody, I don't think, uh, in the political world uh, was surprised that they would take it up. I think, you know, they were I, I think it was a flip of a coin as to whether or not they would rule the way they did, because, you know, four other states have said basically, no, nope, we're not going to we're not going to take this uh, uh, moment to uh, make a decision uh, based on uh, uh, the 14th Amendment uh, that uh, Donald Trump shouldn't be on a ballot. So this is this is a surprise outcome, a close one, mm-hmm. four to three. Uh, and yet, uh, I think uh, we're gonna we're gonna probably see that Donald Trump will make better use of the propaganda around this. You know, the systems against me. These are all Democrats who got put on the bench, and 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 he'll make incredibly good use of this. Now, the media will try to uh, talk about it as if it's a problem for him, but I think we're gonna find out that you know this is another way that Donald Trump turns title on us and. And we'll make it actually a centerpiece of his campaign. Jim, your thoughts? Well, I think Donald Trump will sink or swim based on what voters do, not on what courts do. Um, you know, I, was, I wasn't overly surprised at the Colorado decision because a lot of, secretary of secretaries of state in many different states are doing legal actions to try and prevent Donald Trump from being on the ballot based on January 6th. And, you know, eventually one of these cases was going to go through. Mm-hmm. I expect that the Supreme Court will overturn that ruling and Donald Trump will be on the ballot in Colorado. I I, I, I don't think this is a clear victory for Donald Trump, although I, I agree with Rick Davis that he'll make hay out of it. What is What I think is very possible is the Supreme Court will have this ruling in front of it and say, look, for due process reasons, Donald Trump has not been found guilty of insurrection. He should stay on the ballot. But there's another case that's heading to the Supreme Court that is Jack Smith's case mm-hmm. at the federal level and whether Trump is immune from prosecution um, you know, as, as president. And it could very easily be a split decision where the Supreme Court says Trump can be on the ballot in Colorado, but but we're also going to rule that he's, um, you know, he's not immune from prosecution. So that case is actually more serious for Donald Trump for his political future. Both of you gentlemen agree that Donald Trump is likely to make hay of this, but will say Nikki Haley make hay of it or Joe Biden make hay of it. Does this move the needle for any of his opponents, whether Democrat or Republican? Yeah, I'm, I'm I'm much more confident, Amy, that um, that Joe Biden's going to make better use of this than the Republicans running directly against Donald Trump. You know, who are on a ballot with him in two weeks. Uh, this has been the most docile uh, primary I've ever seen, where 
you know, Donald Trump has a big lead and everyone's trying to catch up with him. And and somehow we're going to try and catch up with him by not even talking about him. Uh, mm-hmm. That is really difficult. Uh, and so uh, I've, I've been woefully unimpressed with the competitiveness of this field from the perspective of willing to take on Donald Trump to try and beat him in a nomination. If they're trying to get him the nomination, I think they're doing a great job. Uh, but uh, certainly not from that perspective. And it's only been recently that Joe Biden has gotten into the act of sort of checking Donald Trump. And that's equally baffling to me, knowing that it's highly likely for the last six months that Donald Trump was going to be the nominee of the party. And 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 for all intents and purposes, the Biden campaign has been willing to let him consolidate his hold on the Republican Party without having any noise coming from the White House. Jim, a question for you. A New York Times Siena poll, call it Siena College poll, finds nearly a quarter of Trump supporters believe that he shouldn't be the GOP nominee if he is found guilty of a crime. Does that move the needle at all? Possibly. I mean, look, I, I think what these polls show is that um, Donald Trump has a commanding lead, but not a stranglehold on the nomination. I do believe that Nikki Haley has a shot a second place finish in Iowa might mean a first place finish in New Hampshire. And then at that point, I think every media outlet from the Weather Channel to ESPN, the Ocho, will be wondering if Donald Trump is vulnerable. But, you know, this goes back to, I think, an original sin from the Republican Party, which was you had the January 6th insurrection. And then many Republicans thought, OK, that's the end of Trump. So let, you know, we'll just, we'll let him die there. And then they all rallied back in support of him. So the situation where, you know, the court can rule in a certain way, um, you know, and allow Trump on the ballot. The reason why that helps Trump is because Republicans after January 6th decided to hold back rather than to say this was truly a serious crime. He should no longer be part of our party and they're paying the price right now. And and Rick, to you, what stood out to me in that poll is that nearly a quarter of Trump supporters believe he shouldn't be the nominee. To me, it sounds like just a quarter. Like, why would his supporters or why would the GOP think this is okay to nominate someone who may be convicted of a crime? Yeah, I think you got to take into context. This is a national survey. Uh, Very few states are actually well represented in the survey where the campaign is actually happening. I mean, when you look into um, uh, where Donald Trump is on the ballot in most of these states, his poll's taken, he's at like 60, 65 percent, right? I mean, there really isn't a primary going on in in the rest of the country. Uh, When you then look at uh, places like Iowa, New Hampshire, where the campaigns have been going at it for the last year, um, you have a lot more, almost a, a third, if not half, uh, in New Hampshire of Donald Trump's ballot support, you know, people who are saying they plan to vote for him, who are saying, but they look at other options right now, right? So so you do see echoes of a willingness to move off of Trump, especially based on, well, if he gets convicted or, you know, if some of these other things happen or just in general, are you willing to look at other people? And that's where the field has their hopes, right? That they, they can peel off some of these folks off of the Trump ballot in the late hours of the primary in both Iowa and New Hampshire to do exactly what Jim Kessler talked about. In this case, Nikki Haley actually, you know, overperforming in Iowa and beating Donald Trump in New Hampshire. Then all of a sudden we're having a completely different conversation about Fortress Trump, you know, down in Mar-a-Lago thinking he's unbeatable. All right. One more quick question for Jim. If the Supreme Court does decide to take this up and it looks like they may, Is there going to be a more national impact from this ruling? What sort of impact do you anticipate? I anticipate that the Supreme Court will say that Donald Trump should be on the ballot in Colorado. I think they will cite due process that he has not been convicted of a crime. Mm -hmm. Um, And the net result will be further... I'd say distrust of the Supreme Court uh, in some ways and feeling like, well, this is a Trump appointed court. Um, but, you know, I I think the Jack Smith case is 
is the one that has more weight here than the Colorado case. Um, so we'll see what happens there with the Supreme Court. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Top story in politics today very much is that court decision out of Colorado. The state Supreme Court ruling that former President Donald Trump is ineligible to be president because of his actions and what they say was inciting insurrection at the Capitol on January 6, 2021. This was a 4-3 decision. The majority writing, quote, President Trump did not merely incite the insurrection. Even when the siege on the Capitol was fully underway, he continued to support it. And what this comes down to in terms of the legal question here really is the 14th Amendment, which says that no one can hold public office who is engaged in insurrection or rebellion. And this is actually a question that President Biden himself had to address today when a reporter asked him about it. Here he is. Well, I think it's self-evident. You saw it all. Now, whether the 14th Amendment applies, I'll let the court make that decision. But he certainly supported an insurrection. No question about it. None. Zero. And uh, he seems to be doubling down on about everything. Joining me now for more on this is Gregory Cordy, who, who is one of our great politics reporters here at Bloomberg. So, Gregory, we just heard the president say it's self-evident. It was insurrection. Issue is, President Trump, former President Trump, has been charged with many things. Insurrection is not one of them, and he's been convicted of nothing. So how does this work? So the 14th Amendment was passed, uh, was adopted by Congress and the states and, and incorporated in the Constitution after the Civil War, when uh, we had all these Confederate officers returning into the fold. And the, and the idea was that they shouldn't be able to hold office, certainly in Congress, if they had sworn to uphold the Constitution, and then they were traitors to the, the Union cause. And so now we're applying that 150, 160 years later, right? In an unprecedented case, we've never, in all that time, we've never gotten this before. And so there's a lot of questions, a a lot of legal questions here. One is, what is the definition of insurrection? How does that apply to what happened on January 6th? Can we say that President, then President Trump, uh, engaged in that insurrection on the Capitol when he wasn't physically at the Capitol. Right. But also, does this apply to the office of the President of the United States? There's an argument that it doesn't. Uh, the, the, who enforces it, right? Uh, does Congress enforce it, or does the Colorado Secretary of State uh, essentially enforce it by determining whether or not he can appear on the ballot? And so all of these are, are brand new questions that, because they're novel questions, the Supreme Court of the United States will almost certainly have to take this up. Well, the the Colorado State Court has stayed this decision until January 4th to give Trump that opportunity to appeal it to the highest court in the land, and he has said he will do so. So it's very, very likely that this is going to come down to nine justices, three of which Trump appointed. Is the feeling here in Washington today essentially that the court, the Supreme Court of the United States is going to overturn the Supreme Court of Colorado? That's obviously unknown. I mean, yeah. if you are have a political mind, you look at the the composition of the court. It's a supermajority for conservatives, six to three. And as you point out, three of those six were appointed by uh, President Trump himself. Uh, but also, there's you know a lot of legal issues here. And one thing we do know about this John Roberts court is that it likes to decide cases on the narrowest possible grounds they can. And so they may try to find some procedural grounds. One of the mm. uh, issues that came up in the dissent in the Colorado case was uh, the dissenting justices pointing out that President Trump really didn't have any right to due process here. As you point out, he's not criminally charged with insurrection. The 14th Amendment doesn't say explicitly you have to be criminally charged, mm. but there is also due process built in the 14th Amendment, other sections of the 14th Amendment, uh, that give 
people the right to be heard. And the question is whether or not Trump had an adequate defense here in the Colorado case. That could be a more narrow grounds for the, the Supreme Court to, to, uh, to overturn this. But then that would open the floodgates for potentially uh, a dozen different mini trials over the course of the next election year mm-hmm. as different states that are trying to exclude Trump from the ballot basically put him on trial for insurrection against the United States. Well, and with a lot of these crimes that the president has been charged with, the former president, 91 total felony charges across four different criminal cases, all of those legal issues to this point have just galvanized his base of supporters, really. This legal issue, though, could actually have an impact on his attempt to once again be seated in the Oval Office, right? If you're not on the ballot, how do you win, how do you win the presidency if this grows larger than it is right now? Yeah, and so that's certainly an argument that, say, Chris Christie, the former governor mm-hmm. of New Jersey, has been making all along, is that Republicans shouldn't be putting all their eggs into the Trump basket at this point because we don't know what the outcome of those criminal trials will be for different criminal trials in four different jurisdictions. But then there's also this case of the uh, the 14th Amendment, and I, I should say that uh, Chris Christie did come out last night and say this isn't his preferred way to do it. Yeah. He would prefer to beat Trump on the ballot uh, rather than have a court decide whether Trump can can compete in the first place. Uh, but the, yes, that's certainly been an argument that um, Republicans should begin to look at other options just because there's so many unknowns with Trump and his legal problems over the next year. And it wasn't just Chris Christie who was saying, leave it up to the voters, not the courts. Nikki Haley said something similar as and well. And Ron DeSantis as well. Yeah. yeah. All right, Gregory Cordy, always wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for joining us. And if you have any more questions around the 14th Amendment, Gregory does have a great quick take piece out today, breaking it all down. So make sure to check that out. We want to get, though, reaction from Congressman Brian Stile of Wisconsin, who we are very lucky to say is joining us now. Congressman, obviously, it's been a big 24 hours in the legal Trump universe. What is your reaction to the decision out of the state of Colorado? I think it's actually pretty simple. Voters should decide elections, not judges. And I think people are frustrated when they have to listen to all the legalese debate back and forth rather than just simply allowing voters to have their say uh, in our upcoming elections. So, Congressman, is, is it that you think the former president has done nothing wrong or just that you think it should be voters that dictate whether or not he has done anything wrong? The the basis of our entire democracy is that voters get to choose who their elected representatives are. And when judges put themselves in the position of making those decisions rather than voters, we're moving in the wrong direction. Let's trust the voters, put the decision in the hands of the voters. I think we're far better off uh, in our democracy. Well, and it's voters that aren't just going to have to make a decision about who they want to be the president of the United States. They're going to be making decisions about who they want representing them all over the country at all different levels of office. And when you have just questions around whether a former president seen as the leader of the Republican Party incited an insurrection, whether he's even eligible to hold office, let alone all of the other rhetoric we have heard uh, debated repeatedly over the course of the last several days, what does it mean more broadly for your party? I think people are just simply frustrated with the fact that there's individuals that want to have their say override the will of the voters. I think people just want to simply go through this primary process, go through the presidential election, let the voters make the decision as to who the next president of the United States is. Right now, President Biden is in my home state of Wisconsin with me here. Mm -hmm. He's in Milwaukee uh, touting Bidenomics. We should be talking about the economic policies, in my opinion, the failed economic policies of this administration rather than allowing our entire conversation to be gobbled up uh, by legalese. Let the voters speak. Let's actually talk about the issues that Americans are facing right now. And we're facing a lot of significant issues in this country that need to be addressed. All right. Well, Congressman, since you brought it up, President Biden has just wrapped up his remarks in Milwaukee. He was addressing uh, the Black Chamber of Commerce. You just were talking about Bidenomics and how it failed. I was taking a look at some numbers before the show. According to the latest figures we have from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the unemployment rate in Wisconsin is lower than the national average, 3.2 percent. According to AAA, the average price of a gallon of gas is 276. That's down more than two dollars from the high in June of last year. Inflation, as we know, has come down more broadly. So what's wrong with that? Simply go to any grocery store in the state of Wisconsin with me and let's talk to the customers as they're checking out, recognizing that their grocery bill is up 20% since President Biden took office and everything they're purchasing is up 17%. Wage growth going into the pandemic was robust and across the board, people were moving ahead in their lives. Now, as we came out of the pandemic, what we've seen is stagnant or falling wage growth is 
inflation has outpaced wages in many cases. Families can't afford the things that they need. People are frustrated, and it's the economic policies of the Biden administration that has brought us here. Everything from his war on energy on day one, uh, beginning with the, the killing of the Keystone XL pipeline and continuing on, is the president's policies of, of paying people not to work after the pandemic, massive multi-trillion dollar spending bills that drove inflation. And the end result is if you speak to people here in Wisconsin, regular folks on the street, they're getting clobbered by Bidenomics and they want to see Washington change course. And I agree with them. So when you say Washington changed course, can we talk about what specific policies? Is this mostly on the tax side of the equation, knowing that this administration also has made a lot of investment into infrastructure with bipartisan support as well, investments in cleaner energy that are at the end of the day argued to reduce these inflationary pressures? What is it that needs to be done that isn't being done right now? A lot of spending decisions are about prioritization. So it's just like your family budget. There's a lot of things you'd like to spend on, but at the end of the day, you come to the table and sit down and identify what your priorities are. Washington continues to fail to do that. And in particular, in the first two years of the Biden administration under Democratic one-party control, what we saw was massive spending bills where everything, including the kitchen sink, got into those bills. And those that vast amount of new federal government spending in large part, drove the inflation that clobbered people on the back end. And when you recognize that family budgets are stretched in large part because of 17% of cumulative inflation since the president came to office, explains a lot of the frustration, but it carries over into other areas. We could look at the median mortgage in the United States of America went from $1,200 a month to $2,400 a month, doubling over the course of the last three years. So if you come and speak to a young couple here uh, in Janesville, Wisconsin, uh, who's trying to move into their first home, trying to go from paying the rent to paying a mortgage, it just got a whole heck of a lot harder. And so getting inflation under control to allow the Federal Reserve to bring the, the interest rates back down is going to have a huge impact. You can't do that if you continue the inflationary policies that we've seen from this administration. Just on the subject, Congressman, of the Fed bringing interest rates back down, how hard do you think the Fed should be cutting, knowing you're on the Financial Services Committee, and how soon? Well, ultimately, that's going to be a decision for the Federal Reserve. I'm not going to supplant the Fed in their decision-making process. But as policymakers, we should be working on policies that assist the Fed to bring inflation down. There's a lot Congress could be doing that it hasn't. In particular, mm -hmm. as we look at the war on energy and the impact that energy has had on driving inflation higher, we should be working to increase the domestic supply of energy here in the United States. Coming out of the pandemic, this administration was literally paying people not to work. The key there is to get more people into the workforce and assisting them in gaining the skills they need to prepare them for the jobs of the future. If we were focused in Congress on economic growing mm -hmm. opportunities that would bring inflation down, it would allow the Federal Reserve to be able to bring that rate down faster. It's just worth noting, because you've referenced the war on energy a few times here, that we got shale figures out just a few days ago. U.S. production of oil is actually at a, a record right now. But because you were just talking about the work Congress needs to do, obviously you're now at home. The Senate's heading out of town today. We have wrapped up the year of 2023, and we don't have top-line appropriations figures. We don't have a deal when it comes to border security and Ukraine funding. Congressman, how much are you dreading returning to all the work Congress has to get done in January? Well, let me go on record and saying I was disappointed that we all left Washington, D.C. We should have kept Congress in place to get that work done. It's far too important to take the break uh, that Congress is doing. That said, when we come back, we have a ton of really important issues. Probably number one on that list is, as you noted, the top line number for appropriations is still not agreed to. That makes me more and more concerned every day as we head towards the next potential lapse in funding in mid-January. And so we got to get our act together. Congress has been abysmal this year working with the president to get things done. I remain probably as frustrated as anybody. and We have some huge topics on the table when we return in the new year. When we think about those top line appropriations figures, would you be encouraging Speaker Johnson and Republican leadership to stick to what was agreed to in the debt ceiling deal midway through this year? Are those the numbers we should be working with here? Well, why we're having this difficult debate after we passed the legislation that said, here are the top line numbers. And now we have Senator Chuck Schumer trying to increase that number unilaterally is beyond frustrating. And so the fact that we reached an agreement across the board, bicameral, bipartisan deal to say, here are the top line numbers to actually get spending under control. And then we're allowing Chuck Schumer to hold us all hostage 
as he tries to rework that negotiated deal and increase total spending is frustrating. The Appropriations Committee has a ton of work to do between now and our opportunity to pass that legislation on the House floor. I'm concerned we're going to be in a position to either A, kick the can down the road, or a worst case scenario where we would allow government funding to actually lapse. So there's the shutdown question. There also is the question around supplemental funding. And we have about a minute left, Congressman. How confident are you that a deal can be made on the border? And is the House willing to give the White House a win potentially on border security? I think the focus is let's get a win for the American people. The border needs to be secure. We have an opportunity to do that. The House passed comprehensive border security legislation in H.R. 2. The Senate has yet to take it up. I think we have a big opportunity here to leverage potential supplemental funding to actually get the border secure. I'm less concerned about who gets the win other than making sure the American people win. And the American people win if we truly secure the U.S.-Mexico border. All right, Congressman, always great to talk to you. Thank you very much for joining us. And if we don't see you beforehand, happy holidays to you and a very happy new year. We'll look forward to having you back in 2024. That's Congressman Brian Stile, the Republican from Wisconsin and chair of the House Administration Committee. And as I mentioned, also on financial services. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. I'm Kaylee Lines in for Joe Matthew today. And yes, we call this the fastest show in politics and headlines certainly are flying fast today. We just got news from former President Trump and the Supreme Court. The former president saying the U.S. Supreme Court should hold off on intervening in the federal criminal case against him over his efforts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Remember, Jack Smith is the special counsel who brought these charges against Trump here in Washington. He has asked the Supreme Court to weigh in, fast-track consideration, on the former president's claim of immunity from prosecution. But former President Trump and his legal team today are saying the court should not do so. His lawyers arguing the special counsel has identified no compelling reason for the extraordinary haste he proposes. They say in their filing, the only injury the special counsel asserts in this appeal, possible delay of the trial date, remembering he's trying to take this to trial in March, even if it is cognizable at all, is not caused by the district court's decision in the prosecution's favor on all issues. Let's bring in a real expert on this now to help break down what this means for this case. Lawrence Tribe is joining us. He is the Carl M. Loeb University Professor of Constitutional Law Emeritus at Harvard University. He has also served as lead counsel in three dozen Supreme Court cases. So, Professor, thank you very much for being with us here. Are you surprised that the former president is asking the court not to weigh in on this in an expeditious manner? Well, I'm not surprised, Kaylee, because that's his go-to strategy. Delay, delay, delay. But he is contradicting himself. Usually, when you have an argument about what's wrong with a criminal prosecution, you wait to see if you're convicted, and then you have an appeal. In fact, that's usually the only time you can raise an issue. Here, the president, former president, I called him president because that's what he insists on calling himself. But here, the former president is the one who said, hurry up. Every minute that this indictment hangs over my head, claiming that I tried to seize power after losing an election, every minute that I am accused of the crime of obstructing Congress is a minute that I'm irreparably harmed. I'm entitled to go up and get a court to decide right now 
that Tanya Chutkin is wrong in putting me on trial. Because as a mm. former president, I should never be on trial for anything I did. And besides, it's double jeopardy since I wasn't convicted by the Senate. They're very weak arguments. But normally you would wait. In his case, he says, don't wait. Rush, rush, hurry. Consider it now. Oh, you want to really hurry? Rush? Oh, I take it back. Slow it down. That's ridiculous. He can't have it both ways. If he has a right, and he does, to have this appeal considered immediately, then the government has the right to step on the gas and not the brakes and have it considered really immediately. Why wait to see what the Court of Appeals says? These are purely legal questions. The Court of Appeals has no special expertise. Whatever it says is going to be subject to review by the U.S. Supreme Court anyway. There's no reason to Mm -hmm. wait. His own arguments are the reason not to wait. And, of course, it's hugely important that it be decided so that voters know when they're going to the polls whether they're voting for a convicted felon or for someone who was wrongly accused. There's a huge, overwhelming national interest in resolving that question before the election, indeed before the Republican convention. So, Lawrence, if all of this comes down to timing and understanding you think these are contradictory arguments here that the former president and his legal team are making, what do you make of their argument that essentially the special counsel's assertion that the injury is possible delay of the trial date is not adequate enough uh, injury when he's seeking a trial date that is just less than three months away? March 4th is when Jack Smith would like it to begin. What do you make of that argument in particular? And also, do you think a March trial is realistic, knowing, as you said, that the former president and his legal camp tend to delay in every way they can? Well, it's realistic if his attempts to delay are turned down. And in this case, there is no basis for delay. He says there's no good reason for the trial to occur in March. Why not hold it after the election? Well, we know that that's ridiculous. People then won't know whether they're voting for a convicted criminal or not. And if he happens to win or manages to act as though he has won the election, then we know the first thing he does after he is sworn in is get rid of this prosecution, fire Mm -hmm. the attorney general who brought it, pardon himself. So it's overwhelmingly important if people are to be accountable under the law, if no one is above the law, that people not be able to delay a trial until it's too late to have a trial. The old thing. So, so Lawrence, on that point of of no one being above the law, really the root of this question is whether or not a former president of the United States can be can be prosecuted. So in your legal opinion, the answer is yes, just as any other citizen can. Absolutely. And I expect the U.S. Supreme Court to agree as well. Otherwise, a sitting president can just shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, maybe a familiar example. Mm. And as long as he does it while he's president, he can never be prosecuted. That can't be the law. And if he says, oh, well, but this wasn't shooting someone, it was just trying to uh, hold on to power, that's also not part of the president's job. So it's absolutely crucial if we're going to have a democracy and the rule of law that he be held accountable, Mm -hmm. that anyone be held accountable. And as I was earlier saying, Justice delayed is really justice denied in this case. Whether you think he's guilty or innocent, we're entitled to have the answer from a jury of his peers in a trial that begins mm-hmm. on schedule on March 4th or soon thereafter. And that requires the okay, U.S. So- Supreme Court to indict this. So what you're describing, though, in terms of the rule of law, of law a jury of peers, actual conviction or not, this is due process, right? This is how the system works. So I'd like to get your thoughts on another matter very much in the news today. The Supreme Court of Colorado ruling that former President Trump should be removed from the ballot in that state because he incited the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6, 2021, and in doing so violated the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. What do you think of that ruling, knowing he hasn't even been charged with insurrection, let alone convicted of any federal crime? Whether you're charged or convicted has everything to do with whether you should go to jail. It has nothing to do with whether you're disqualified. The whole point of putting in this democracy-protecting provision in the 14th Amendment after the Civil War was that people who are found 
in a fair proceeding and the week-long trial that Colorado held in this case was a very fair proceeding. The president had every opportunity to put in evidence. If you're found after a fair proceeding to have taken an oath to uphold the Constitution and then turned against it by engaging in an insurrection against the Constitution, you can't be trusted with power again because that's the path to destroying democracy. That's why that provision is in there. It has nothing to do with whether you are tried and convicted of a crime or held civilly liable. The president had a week of detailed hearings. There were 298 factual findings made by the trial court in Colorado. They were not upset on appeal. None of the justices of the Supreme Court of Colorado, including the ones who descended on different grounds, found any fault with those findings. And now it's time for the U.S. Supreme Court which is certainly going to have to decide that case as soon as the former president asks it to do so. Um, it's time for the U.S. Supreme Court to weigh in on whether he is disqualified under those provisions of the 14th Amendment. And knowing that this court is a conservative supermajority, frankly, there are six conservative justices, half of which were appointed by the former president. What way would you expect the Supreme Court to rule on that matter? Well, I don't have a crystal ball. I think if they follow the law, Judge Michael Ludig, a very distinguished conservative, and I think they will have to affirm the decision and render an unexpected, perhaps in many ways unpopular ruling that keeps them off the ballot. They find mm -hmm. some way consistent with the 14th Amendment and their oath to the Constitution, some exit ramp, some way of not keeping them off the ballot. I don't really see what it could be, but it's a pretty ingenious court, and they have found ways to do some pretty strange things. All right. On that note, we will leave it. Thank you very much for hopping on with us on this breaking news. We really, really appreciate your legal insight. That was Lawrence Tribe, uh, Professor Emeritus of the Carl M. Loeb University, Professor of Constitutional Law at Harvard University. We sincerely appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.